and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hey, Medea. So this week we have Taya Abrecht and her new novel, Inland. Yes. And I was not around for this conversation. It's between you and Eric. Well, Inland is a Western that is bifurcated into two stories, one of an outlaw named Lori and the other of a frontiers woman named Nora, whose husband has disappeared. And I won't give away more than that. I'm almost thinking it's like the same person. It's not. (laughs) Spoiler alert, they are two separate people, but I like your inventiveness. (laughs) Sometimes uh, the outlaw is the sauce of the frontiers. Yes, but in this case, they are, in fact, two different people. Gotcha. Have you watched Westerns, Kate? Do you have any beloved Westerns? Very few. Me too. I mean, I've seen High Noon. I also recently rewatched Sam Peckinpah, The Wild Uh, Bunch. And that's a good one. That feels like accurate in its death toll. It's like a gang of outlaws followed by another gang. And in short, everybody dies. Ah. Yeah. So it feels very accurate in that sense. Yeah. After I saw the Tarantino film, I was I wasn't even sure like what exactly was being poked fun at. Wait, which Tarantino film? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, oh. because it's all about you know oh, being right. in these B westerns, and I thought oh, maybe I should watch some. Yeah. Perhaps I'll do that. Maybe I will too. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> Great. Well, <laughs> before we do that, let's listen to this conversation with Taya Obrey. Let's do it. We have Taya Abrecht with us today. Taya Abrecht was born in Belgrade in the former Yugoslavia in 1985 and has lived in the United States since the age of 12. Her writing has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Harper's, and The Guardian. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novel The Tiger's Wife, which came out in 2010. Her latest novel is Inland, which tells the story of Lori, an outlaw in the Old West, and Nora, a woman whose husband has disappeared and who's trying to keep her family together and alive on the frontier. Thank you so much, Taya, for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Taya, I wanted to start maybe with like a somewhat broad question, which is thinking about your kind of transition and immersion in this novel into the genre of the Western. I'm interested in hearing about whether or not that transition to a different kind of genre was difficult for you, but also what you find appealing about the Western as a genre. Sure. Well, I think that what I found appealing about it was sort of this opportunity to work against so many of the tropes that I had grown up knowing. Mm-hmm. I grew up, as you said, in the former Yugoslavia, and even there, we knew Westerns. You know, we knew cowboy Westerns, because that's sort of the gold standard of the genre, right? And as I started to research this book, I was really surprised. I knew that my lens was narrow. My, my lens on the genre was narrow but I didn't realize how narrow. And so the opportunity to play with some of those tropes, like the hardened wanderer, the woman in distress on the homestead, or, you know, this, the town intrigue situation really, really appealed to me, particularly because the research revealed exactly how varied life on the frontier was, how communities mm. intermingled and, and intermarried and, and sort of grew their own cultures. And it was really wonderful to get to flesh that out a little bit in the book. 
Was it difficult to write in that? Like, did you have any kind of hiccups as you tried to get yourself into that world, even as you're breaking its conventions to kind of work through them? Yeah, absolutely. I think what was challenging was figuring out the language, right? Because I, I wanted mm. to write something that sounded that sounded a little bit old-timey, that had this, like, veneer of a different era, but that wasn't dialect. And so I read a lot of newspapers of the era and a lot of diaries of the time and letters, all of which sort of, again, presented an extra kind of gloss, because when you're talking about reading documents from the era, you're already talking about who can write and who did write in English. And then I stumbled on this book called The Dictionary of Americanisms, which was basically like a compendium of regional terms. And it made me realize that to overcome this problem of the language, I could essentially develop idioms that belonged to the respective enclaves that I was writing about. So if there were two narratives, one was going to have its own dialect and the other was going to have its own dialect, irrespective of what language background the characters came from or their level of education. And that was really key to understanding how to break that problem, I think. I want to hear a little more about your childhood experience with the Westerns. I read that your grandfather watched them and you watched them Mm -hmm. together. What are the ones that you remember? And what was that experience like? What was that introduction to the West like? I think it was very, you know, it was epic and glamorous (laughs) from the perspective of film. I think I remember High Noon, and I think I remember Once Upon a Time in the West, which mm-hmm. were very different. And I remember being overwhelmed by the landscape that's presented in Once Upon a Time in the West. I'm pretty sure it was filmed in Spain. But one of the things that was different, I think, about my understanding of the Western growing up was that we learned about the history of the West as a history often of warfare and Native American resistance. So, like, the notion of manifest destiny fulfilled was not at the forefront of our education about it. It was more like, this is a very violent place. It was a place of wartime constantly, and people resisted incursion onto their land. I think this is a very sort of fittingly contrarian Balkan approach, which I was surprised to find differed from the way that that narrative is posited here. And I think one of the things that contributed to it was the fact that many of the people of my grandfather's generation learned about the Western genre through the writer Karl May, who was German, I believe. He might have been Austrian, and he never set foot in the West. But he wrote all these high-adventure Westerns, but centering Native American characters. Those are the Westerns my grandfather grew up with. I was actually going to say that name sounds familiar, and I believe I'm from the former Soviet Union also. And I'm fairly certain my dad loves those and has recommended them to me. And I've always thought it was fascinating what writers other cultures read and think of as important, whereas they're completely unknown in the place where supposedly it should matter most. Totally. And it's interesting how widespread he was. I have absolutely no doubt that your dad loves Chrome. (laughs) You know, he was so widespread all over Europe and beyond. Like, he was just, he was it, you know. Did you feel in some way kindred to him as a person who is not necessarily from the West, though, of course, you've stepped foot in it, but as a person who is from outside of the United States originally, but writing about this supposedly extremely American experience? I don't know that I necessarily feel kindred to him, but I think that that tradition is, closer to the truth for me than writing an American Western as an American. The immigrant Western, maybe. 
Actually, I love that distinction, Taya. It's like, so one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about is the way in which your novel, like both participates in, well, certain characters do, and then also centers other characters who disaffiliate or challenge the mythology of the American West. I'm wondering actually if this question about what the immigrant American Western or the immigrant Western looks like as both a kind of mythology of, say, like possibility, kind of what Nora's husband sees mm-hmm. it as. But then mm-hmm. you seem to also kind of constantly be, there's a way that Lurie also does, but you also bring us in the experience of Nora and probably also Josephine, albeit a little bit differently, into the failure of possibility. So can you just talk a little bit about what the Western means from an immigrant perspective about some kind of mythology and then how you're challenging that inside the novel? Yeah, I think that one of the reasons that I was drawn to this story, particularly to the story of the Camel Corps, was my curiosity about how myths die and what myths persist. You know, when we think about the Western as a genre, it's this gritty, masculine, often sort of semi-tragic but ultimately triumphant narrative, right, of the survival and triumph of the individual. You know, and even in situations where the individual dies, like, well, he saved the village, right? Right. (laughs) And I think that possibility was really appealing not only as the genre grew outward in, in film and on the page, but it was really popular in its time. And it drew a lot of people west. But one of the things that the research really clearly showed and that I really wanted to explore was to whom that limitless possibility was really open. And whom it put at risk, actually, and what it required of the rest of society in order to make that promise to some people. A lot of homesteading memoirs or compendiums of letters feature these really subdued narratives of women who are essentially saying, it hasn't worked out in the prospecting gig, but not to worry, we're going to move 100 miles further west to an even less populated place, (laughs) kind of disregarding who we're going to displace on the way. That's usually not even mentioned. This is just a given. And Tom, who's failed at prospecting, he'll make a go in a freighting business because that's the next thing. And it was this idea of reinvention for, like, the white male patriarch of the family. Meanwhile, the kids are getting dragged along. Other people's prospects are failing. If you're talking about the Southwest, you're talking about incursion onto both Native Mexican and Indigenous Mexican land. It's very detonative in the way that it sacrifices others to this limitless possibility for some. And that... The way it's mythologized is the central founding narrative. It's perhaps the most recognizable of the founding narratives of this country is is interesting. So I think that I wanted to write, it was clear to me from the beginning, because I did want to stick to the real history of the Camel Corps and the myth of the Red Ghost, that this was going to be a book about at least two perspectives that are excluded from this possibility and what it means to try and try and try. So for listeners who might not have read the book, would you quickly explain what the Camel Corps is? Because it's a totally surreal story that, as you just mentioned, happens to be completely factual. Yeah. 
Yeah. Can you tell, can you tell us what that is? In the 1850s, I didn't know this when I stumbled onto the story, but in the 1850s, the United States military brought over first one and then a second boatload of camels from the Ottoman Empire to try them out as pack animals in the American Southwest. The reasoning being that the roads weren't super well known, there wasn't reliable information about water sources, and it would be better to have an animal that could withstand that kind of arduous trek rather than relying on the typical mules and horses. The camels came over with young men from the Ottoman Empire who were Greeks and Turks and Arabs, and they staked what is now Route 66, (laughs) Um, which had already been a pre-existing road, of course, for hundreds of years. And the experiment was very short-lived and disbanded in the wake of the Civil War. And the camels were auctioned off, and then they sort of ended up wandering the desert and having these strange encounters for decades with the local population, which led to myths like the Red Ghost. One of the other things that I'd like to ask you about with the book is the presence of ghosts in it. But let's start with the Red Ghost. I heard about the Red Ghost on a podcast that I love called Stuffy Mist in History Class. And this particular episode was framed as an Arizona campfire yarn about two homesteading women who encounter a huge, hideous, inexplicable quadruped on their ranch one evening while the men are away. And they have a violent encounter with it, and it runs off and continues to sort of ghoul around the area for some years afterwards. And then the podcast went on to explain the presence of this animal in the context of the camel corn. And what I had found unbelievable when I first heard it was, number one, that I didn't know this history, and number two... I was just filled with so many questions about what that encounter must have looked like and how it must have felt to the respective parties. And I found it deeply moving. You know, it felt like a convergence of lives that really didn't matter, lives that were so clearly destined to be forgotten by history from the moment of their conception. And I wanted to know everything about the day that had led up to this encounter and about the life that had put one of these, one of the congregants on this journey. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Taya Abrecht, author most recently of the novel Inland. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Magdalena Edwards in the studio with us today. Magdalena is a writer, actor, and translator from Spanish and Portuguese. She recently translated Clarice Lispector's The Chandelier. And Magdalena is also recently the author of an essay that we published on LARB called Benjamin Moser and the Smallest Woman in the World. And Magdalena is here to give us a recommendation. Magdalena, what are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend the only filmed interview of Clarice Lispector that you can find if you Google her name and interview. It's online. Okay, tell us about it. It's 20 minutes of incredible intensity. She gave this interview at the very end of her life. She asked the interviewer before they began filming, well, she said, I'll only do this if you promise not to air it until after I've died. 
And it's incredible for me as a kind of performance art piece. And she was very interested in performance and writing, performance and translation. In the interview itself, the interviewer asks her questions and she often will cut him off and say, no, that's a secret. He asks her, how do you feel as a professional writer? She says, I'm not a professional, I'm an amateur. That's how I maintain my freedom. And then he begins to ask her about what it's like for her between projects, how she feels between writing projects. And she says that when she's not writing, she's dead and that she's speaking from the tomb right now. And for me, that's an incredible moment, especially thinking about the fact that it wasn't aired until after she had passed. So I recommend this film. She also talks about the first time she had a a story published. She marched into an editor's office, gave him her story. He looked at it and he, the way she tells the story, he asked her, is this yours? Yes. Is it a translation? No. So she brings up the question of translation as well, which I love Mm -hmm. as a translator. Well, this sounds great. How might a person find it? Google it. You Google it. Google Clarice Lispector, C-L-A-R-I-C-E. Lispector, L-I-S-P-E-C-T-O-R, interview. All right. Thank you so much, Magdalena. Thank you. That was Magdalena Edwards. She's a writer, most recently of a piece called Benjamin Moser and the Smallest Woman in the World. And she's also a translator from the Portuguese of Clarice Lispector's The Chandelier. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Taya Albrecht, author of Inland. I love that. One of the things that, as you're talking too, I'm thinking about the way in which your novel takes our kind of somewhat stuffy, distilled from Western's idea about the West, particularly at this moment in history, right, which is 19th century, but are we like mid-century? So we start, one of the threads is the 1850s, starts in the 1850s, 1850. the 1840s, okay. but, and the other one is 1893. Okay, so we're right. So it's like as we're heading out of kind of the mid-19th century and towards this new kind of 20th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the kind of like more modern possibilities there. It, one of the things that is interesting to me is that there's this narrative of the West that's kind of, uh, that persists even today, I think, of kind of like this great open space, right? Kind of uh, virgin land or territory, which of course ignores all of the indigenous people that have been here since time immemorial, but also yeah. as you're kind of bringing up the Camel Corps, for example, and all of these other figures, it's actually like the the West comes to seem like this much more diverse, much more, if not kind of like densely populated, not in that way, but kind of like populated by a wide array of characters, right? So kind of opening mm-hmm. up our perspective on the West, if that makes sense. Thank you. Yeah, I know. I mean, I mean, my, my perspective was certainly opened by it. And I think that that's, to go back to your earlier question, I mean, I think that in many ways that may be the biggest thing that the book ended up working against, this notion of that flat, really recognizable mythology. I wanted to use it. You know, I wanted to use the relentless lawman and, you know, the threat of the cattle baron, which is actually, I discovered, only a new trope in Westerns because it Mm. used to be about all the good, it used to be about the good cattle baron. (laughs) Really? Um, Yeah. When did you discover that it it had turned? It turned, so 
there were many incidents of the newspaper wars that have such a huge role in, in the beginning of, of Inland in Nora's narrative are not too far off the mark of what was going on often in places where large entrepreneurial interests like cattle parents or railroad parents would buy up a newspaper and put forward their own narratives of what was going on in terms of depredations from, you know, smaller groups. There was there were many, many range wars that were dependent on people believing the cattle baron's newspaper whenever it said, oh, you know, they rustled my cattle. Mm-hmm. These rustlers came and they rustled my cattle. And the truth would be that it was just like Joe Schmo who has like three cows and doesn't want to share the land and like maybe took one calf. Right. Um, and so these narratives started to turn as historians began to explore this more in the mid-1900s, these narratives started to change, you know, and position the cattle baron more as the, as the villain. That's so interesting. I thought so. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I think it is because you, well, one thinks of that as a pretty consistent trope. So it's, it's interesting to hear that it, it, in fact, was different in the beginning. Yeah, um, Taya, can I also ask you about um, another kind of interesting historical reference is spiritualism, right, mm-hmm. around during this period. So, and this yeah. kind of ties us back to the um, the question about the ghosts, right, and, and particularly Lurie as a, a character who, and I, this isn't really spoiling anything, but it's like that he was a grave robber, right? That's one of the right. things that he's yeah. running from. And it said that um, one one of the characters seems to be able to say, what is it that she can like smell the ghosts on him or she can tell that he's effectively haunted. And I think that like yeah. Laurie also feels that he's haunted. So there's a way in which there's kind of a, a spiritual overlay of a kind of psychological narrative of the West in which one is escaping something in quote unquote civilization and then running away to the opposite of that in order to break with one's prior life, right? This is kind of the... Yeah the like criminal mythology of the West, right? That it's like uh, Raskabouts and those types of people that just, they run and they make a fortune in the West because they both like there's opportunity there, but they also needed to get away from something in their past. I just want to hear more about this because spiritualism is a really interesting thing from the 19th century that I think has mm-hmm. interesting kind of residues in contemporary culture, popular culture. Um, but that's also an aspect of this story. And I wanted to think about what you understood in terms of ghosts, both as a presence within the story, but also as a kind of way of wrangling or wrestling with one's past for several of these characters. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that's so, that's so apt, you know, they, um, they do all, these characters are running from their pasts, uh, which are often very haunted, but they run straight into the arms of ghosts. Um, (laughs) I think that all, all of them, you know, Lurie, as you said, can see the dead from the very beginning of the book. Josie is uh, Nora's ward, um, and she claims to be clairvoyant, which drives Nora crazy, which is super ironic because Nora's been carrying on a conversation these last 17 years with what she insists is the imagined ghost of her right. dead daughter. <laughs> and. So I, I think that all happened really, really early in the first draft. They all had their ghosts, and they were all finding solace and, and sort of a sense of self in their relationships to the dead. 
that just keeps <laughs> cropping up in my work in ways that, that horrify and surprise me. That's a different story for a different time. Spiritualism fit into this in a really interesting way for, for me, because as soon as this was on the page, I started reading more about attitudes of the period. And what I got from the research I did was that because of all the technological innovations that had been happening in the lead-up to the turn of the century, people were really, really vulnerable. I think, to again, this, this notion of endless possibility. You know, you had people who used to write letters and then all of a sudden you were telling them that waves could be pulled out of the air and that, you know, human speech and the human voice could be transmitted um, from one end of the country to another, you know, it, it, yeah. stuff yeah. that people, that, that still feels kind of like magic to me, you know what I mean? I'm sure I've explained it wrong just there because it's just so over my head. A lot of um, talksters and then a lot of sincere people um, hooked into this notion that perhaps what was missing, what we were one step away from as a society was, you know, determining some technological marvel that was going to enable us to open up the spiritual plane. That it certainly existed. You know, there was a there was a scientific reinforcement of the fact that things you cannot see definitely exist and can be accessed and used in daily life. And I think that that a, that a certain kind of hopeful and yet very I, I don't know how to describe it. A certain kind of hope exists uh, whenever people don't understand the way the world around them is changing. And uh, I, I really wanted to hook into that. And since the ghosts were already there, it was an alignment of the stars for me. Do you feel yourself traveling with ghosts? Like, do you have ghosts sure. of your own? For sure, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think we all do. And I think that we, so much of what we do as we grow older, is in relation to these things for which, that we're trying to continue to engage with as, they, as we leave them behind in our pasts. And um, so much of what we do is in the context of, of, things, of our regrets and our attempts to atone for things that, you know, even small things that we miss the chance to do or say. Would you mind telling Sorry, that us? Went real, that went real dark. No, I don't, I, I don't think so. Would you mind telling us about one or of your ghosts, or what is what is oh. one that you feel like you know has really stuck with you? Gosh, uh, <laughs> this is a this is a tough one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, how personal? Um, the the day my grandmother died, I spoke to her purely by accident. I had intended to call her the day before, and I didn't. I was on the road. And I called her the day before my birthday and discovered that she had fallen and, and she was pretty much, it was, it was the end. She could, she could barely speak. I've never really, I mean, you know, that day that I didn't call, it was just a, it's a big old haunted day. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I was lucky to get to speak to her, but I almost didn't. And all the things that she didn't hear me say, you know, mm. it's big. Yeah. Wait, so then, Taya, for you, is haunting a kind of regret? Because I guess I've always thought of it in maybe a more, I mean, I also have a kind of grandmother story, but I thought of it as a more um, 
a more positive thing. Like, you know, like the palimpsest, for example. Like, I, I think about that a lot with kind of our imaginary of ghosts, right? They're kind of gauzy, mm -hmm. um, gossamer subject, you know, they're hazy. They're not, they're there, but not quite there. Like the way a palimpsest kind of is still visible, but not mm -hmm. quite. Um, and that they're like the way that you can be haunted in a positive way by like the impressions that someone has left on your life, right? Oh, in a way that I think is the closest that I'm comfortable necessarily with saying that there is a such thing as an afterlife. There's an afterlife in the kind of, in the impressions that you leave on people. For like, sure. In some ways, maybe this sure. moment, it's like you were left, that's an impression that's, that's on you. That's a kind of haunting, but that's also a presence. For sure, absolutely. And you and I think that you carry those impressions with you into your life with often with pride. You know, it, it I, I think yeah. that, that when you accomplish something or you have an interaction or an experience that, that is reflective of that person that loops back to, to a shared moment or to a shared impression, you feel that you are continuing to share it with that person who's gone. So for for sure. For sure. One of the things that really struck me about the book was how vividly you imagine the people who might have inhabited a place at some time or at a certain time. And I was wondering, do you take that skill with you on a day-to-day -day basis? Like, are, are you, do you travel and sort of helplessly imagine the way that people, the people who had inhabited that place prior to you being there, or it just think about that? I do. I think about it all the time. And I think that that might be a, a byproduct of sort of having grown up um, so much on the move and having grown up in, in places like, like Cyprus and Egypt where you can't help but be constantly reminded of the past, you know. Mm. I was just talking about this with someone, you know, to, to, to live in a modern city where blocks of ancient temples have been taken and repurposed into buildings or churches, you know, hundreds of years ago, but, but still standing, hooks you into, uh, plugs you into this notion of, of, the, of the past as a living thing. And, yeah, I can't help but, but imagine it. And I, and I do think that, that in, in many ways, we were talking about this too, that part of the reason why we are able to so thoroughly, as a culture and a society, erase the true history of the West is that we're not in proximity with those vestigial monuments, you know? Mm -hmm. We don't have to encounter them, and therefore we don't have to live with the past. And, you know, you can afford as a society then to put Native American history in the first chapter of every textbook and leave it there, even though that's thousands of years. So I think... This leads me to my last question, and you you just touched on it a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, what are some of the lessons of the Old West? What do we take from this? Oh, God. <laughs> Sorry, I lobbed another, another tough one at you. No, that's a, that's, that's a really good, um, it's a really good question, and um, I wish I had something more concrete than a, than a swirl of answers. What I took from the experience of writing this book is that, or actually not even from the experience of writing this book, but from, from the experience of delving into this history as deeply as the book required, is that contrary to what our mythology is always trying to tell us, and our big myths are always trying to tell us, stories and people don't survive because they deserve to. <laughs> 
And not every story that deserves to actually survive. You know, we have this, we're so deeply invested in the notion of, of goodness triumphant and that our ability to survive and persevere is rooted in inherent worth. And so much of the Western genre is built on that notion. And history does not prove that up at all, prove that out at all. Well, thank you so much, Taya, for speaking with us today. It's so dark. <laughs> uh, well, you know. We're all going to die. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, that is, you know, maybe sad, but that does feel like where we are right now. It's accurate. So it's very apropos. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I, I, I think if it's okay with you, we can just actually end on all of us laughing about how we're all going to die. Um, sure. That might be <laughs> that might be a lighter note. We have been speaking with Taya Abrecht. She is the author of The Tiger's Wife, and her latest novel is called Inland. Thank you so much, Taya. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 